1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books and Music podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with Will Birch, author of Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe, now out in paperback by Constable Books. Welcome to the show, Will.
1: Hi, Dan. Hi. Nice to be there.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for coming on this show. Uh, it's a real thrill to speak to you. I'm a great admirer of your book, but before we before we dive into the book and Nick Lowe's career, can you tell us a little about you and your career?
1: Well, um, I, I started playing the drums, I guess, in the 1960s when I was a teenager, big fan of The Who and The Rolling Stones, of course. Um, in the mid-70s, I was in a group called the Curzel Flyers. Uh, we, we came out of the London pub rock scene, really, and we had a hit record in the UK with a song called Little De Chino. Um And then in 1978, I formed a group called The Records with a friend, a co-songwriter called John Wicks, and we had a bit of success in the US – with a song called Starry Eyes, which climbed the charts a little bit. Uh, we toured over there a fair bit. And um, then in the 90s, I did some record production. Uh, in the 80s, I should say, I did some record production. In the 90s, um, I'd, I'd never really written much before, only the odd angry letter to the melody maker or something like that. But I, I was when Mojo magazine in the UK launched, um, they they got in touch with me and asked me if I wanted to do some writing for Mojo. Uh, And of course I said, yes, I I really enjoyed that. And that led to me, led me to uh, books. My first book was called No Sleep Till Canvey Island, which was about the London pub rock scene of the 1970s. And since then I've done biographies of Ian Dury and of course, Nick Lowe. So that's what I've done, my stuff.
0: Well, you said writing. I know you also co-wrote A1 on the Jukebox. With Dave Edmonds, uh, yes, correct?
1: Yes, with Dave Edmonds. Um, uh, for, actually, it was Nick who very kindly uh, gave Dave my very crude home demo of the song with a with a fairly poor tune and Dave put a better tune to it and he recorded it on one of his albums in 1978 so, so that was a good year for you know songwriting I got quite a few covers that year um, but anyway or co-write covers uh, anyway but yeah Dave, Dave did uh, a one on the jukebox, which was thrilling for me, of course.
0: <laughs> it's it still stands up. I listened to it yesterday. So <laughs> let's let, let's move into Nick Lowe. So yeah. late in your book, you quote Jake Gronick, Nick's, co- Nick's co-manager, as saying this quote: "The difference between Nick Lowe and other artists is that he never disappoints. He is Nick Lowe on stage and off stage. He is a total pleasure to be around, appreciative, and completely brilliant." quote comment
1: well i i guess nick uh, uh, carries his personality on stage with himself and then vice versa occurs when he comes off stage and he meets with fans who does interviews uh, and and generally presents himself to his public um he can be very charming and witty um but he's always i think he's always sincere um in private he might occasionally drop his card <laughs> and speak his mind, but he's honest and he can uh, tell it like it is when it's called for. Um, and I'm sure that his manager, Jake Geronik, uh, has witnessed uh, some of this side of Nick from time to time, but they've worked together for, well, nearly 30 years, which tells you something about their mutual respect. So I think when they when they hooked up in the, in the well, I guess in the 90s, um, you know, at that time Nick was managed by Jake Riviera. Uh, and the funny thing was that the two Jakes formed a management company called The Two Jakes, but now there's only one Jake with Nick, and that's Guralnik. So staying power on both sides, a lot of respect with Jake Guralnik. He's been very helpful to me over the years as well, so great guy. Great guy. And, of course, he's, and of course he's the son of a very well-known uh, music thing. His dad, Peter Gronick has written some great books, so, yeah.
0: Sure. So, so let's talk more about about Nick's personality. He said uh, you know, off stage, he he's a he's famously self deprecating, right? You, you quote him as saying, "You have a lot of great." The book is filled with great quotations by him, and one of them is, "Whenever I hear one of my records on the radio now, I think there's been some kind of mistake." So, Nick Lowe kind of has this image, this this shtick. He calls it of like cool nonchalance, and and that's part of the persona, right? He says in your book, he says a quote. I do take a lot of trouble to make the song sound like I've taken no trouble at all. And you quote journalist Peter Silverton at length on this. Silverton says, quote, he really cares about what he does, but pretends he doesn't. Now, you got him to talk very much about his life and his songs and the writing process. And you say right at the beginning, and I love this line, you say right at the beginning, the louder I listened, the more he talked. I love that. The louder I listened, the more he talked. So how'd you get him to talk? What's he like?
1: Well, you know, I've known Nick for, I don't know, for 40, 50 years, something like that. Um, uh, I spent quite a bit of time with him in the 80s when I was working with um, Jake Riviera and looking after Carleen Carter. You know, I was tour manager for Carleen Carter for a couple of years. So I was always hanging out with with them and got to know Nick. And he's always been very, very helpful to me. He's never declined an interview and so forth. But he does have his sort of what, you you know, his shtick. um, And it's become ingrained in him, his his wry humour, his sense of irony, uh, his natural ability to rise above the mundane and see the funny side of almost any situation. And, of course... He does have what I would call a selection of stock jokes and one-liners that come out every now and then, um, a few of which uh, occasionally escape the public domain. Um, I always thought Rockpile were very, very funny, um, especially their guitarist, the Scottish guitarist Billy Bremner. Um, he was very funny, Billy, and I think a lot of the humour came from him. He would begin every sentence with "eh." Uh, for example, we're talking about a particular musician with a flamboyant name. If you think of somebody like Bo Diddley or Wayne Fontana, Billy might say, "Yeah, I wonder what his stage name is." You know, <laughs> that sort of irony. You know, twisting it round. And uh, another one, or if if Billy had met a famous person on the road, he'd say, "Yeah, but uh, Prince Charles told me never to name drop." You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I think that I think that was actually one of Frankie Miller's that uh, a Pinch Charles name drop gag, but um, I guess you had to be there. But the ironic humour was all part of that, uh, and it was a big thing in Rockpile. Um, Nick is uh, naturally modest. Um, he knows, of course, when he's written a really good song, but he always he plays it down. I mean, anyone has written lately. I've let things slide, you know. For example, must you now no, it's a it's a brilliant brilliant lyric. Uh, but but he's able to make it come across as effortless. Or his songs these days are more sound more effortless than the earlier ones did. You know, there's an economy of words, and a tune that might sound slightly familiar, but different. You know, so he he does feed off of 60 years of listening to pop music. You know, obviously as as you do. Um, you know, you mentioned Pete Silverton. Pete Silverton was or still is a, a journalist. He he wrote on an English. Um, a weekly uh, pop uh, rock and roll uh, publication uh, called Sounds. I think he wrote for, and maybe he wrote for Musical Express as well. Uh, he he knew Nick um, quite early on. Um, they came from a similar neck of the woods, I think, in the days of Brinsley Schwartz. And um, but Pete, who, who's a bit younger than us, but he he had um, great psychological in, in, insight into Nick's behavior behavior and and the way Nick talked and Pete Silverton is very perceptive. I was very pleased when he agreed to do an interview uh, for me with for the book, uh, the Nick Lowe book. Um, but he, he he had a lot of insight. He he could kind of read Nick. You know, he could tell when Nick was making it up a bit, uh, and Pete was never afraid to to mention, like, the truth, you know. So I was pleased to get Pete's uh, perception on Nick very, very, very good. Um, as far as my own experience goes with Nick, I, I think I've probably done – a sort of twenty interviews with him over the years, whether it be like ten minutes on the phone about his latest record for Mojo or something like that, to these long sessions we would have over lunch, which which sort of um, became more intense as as I I was you know focusing on writing a book about Nick. At first, he kind of pretended he didn 't know why I was doing all these interviews with him, and then one day he said you, what you're right you mean you 're writing a book?" I said, "Yeah, well, yeah, sure there should be a book about Nick Low out there and and of course he 's very modest. Oh, who could possibly be interested in me you know that which' kind of very, very funny um, but we these interviews we 'd meet face to face over lunch in 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 the middle of London. Uh, uh, and I would always have my recording device at the ready, which he, he pretended he, he couldn't. He, he sort of ignored it, you know. Even when it was one of those big old things with a microphone, like twenty or thirty years ago. Now it's a little tiny device, but but he he would always pretend he would always completely ignore it, which which I loved that. And um, you know, we'd have the main course, and the, the, they'd clear the table and bring the coffee, and then then I would ask him a, a question, and I once he got going if it was a subject he was interested in talking about, he usually was, uh, you know, I couldn't shut him up. And I just sat there and I listened and I listened. I, mean, I do admit, I mean, occasionally uh, I would butt in, <laughs> you know, if I felt I wanted, what, what did you say there? What What do you mean? You know, I had to butt in occasionally, but I usually let him run. And, and the longer I let him run, the funnier, the funnier it got. And um, I recorded it and I've got dozens of hours of, well, I don't know, 30 hours or more of him on tape talking which I've used much of, you know. I had to um, to uh, use. Well, I wanted to use in 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 the book, um, but um, he, you know, he trusts me. I think, and he knows I'm a fan. I mean, I'm not afraid to say I'm a fan of your stuff. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. And um, he's great, you know. He's a terrific That's interview, great. as you know. Yeah.
0: It sounds like, like, with the first question, You know, his off-screen, his off-stage persona and his on-stage persona, they're, they're very, very you know, much of a piece.
1: They are. They are. And I think in recent years, he's even – I mean, if you go back to the 70s, he could be um, a little bit tricky. I mean, during that sort of post-punk rock period and when there was a lot of, uh, let's say, indulgence going on, um, he could be a bit sharp with people. There's no doubt about that um but but he's re- these days you know he's really uh, it's it's he's natural he's natu- he's naturally charming and funny and he's he's i think he's pleased to be alive and pleased to be working which is great you know so <laughs>
0: Yeah, so the first part of your book, which which was all news to me when I read it, and I came to your book as already a, a super fan, but this was all news to me. The first part where you talk about his childhood and his father and, and his father's role in the RAF and, and all the exciting places where where Nick grew up. Can you can you speak about that?
1: Yeah. Um- Yeah, Nick's father, Geoffrey Drain Lowe, uh, he was in the Royal Air Force during the the, uh, Second World War and through the 1950s, and he rose to quite high rank. Um, He was awarded the CBE by the Queen, that's the Order of the British Empire, highly decorated for his bravery and leadership skills. Um, When Nick was, uh, I guess, about six or seven years old, uh, Drain got posted... um, uh, to uh, Jordan uh, during the Suez Crisis, you, you've probably heard of the Suez Crisis, and he he was um, he was given the job of assisting with the security of King Hussein of Jordan, and uh, this resulted in um, Nick with his dad going to King Hussein's I would say palace, his house, I guess, and he, he he Nick got a terrific lot of insight into the way into the way that world works, and he also got. Nick also got insight into the lives of RAF air force officers, you know, on and off duty. I mean, the following year, I think we're talking now fifty-seven, when Nick was uh, about coming on eight years old. uh, Drain was uh, stationed in Cyprus, and Nick and the family all went out there to join him in the summer. Uh, And of course, this was these are the early years of rock and roll, Um, you know, Elvis, etc. And as you probably know, the American um, airbase, there were a lot of US uh, air bases over, the, over there as well. And they used to have um, uh, shops, you know, where the the, the American um, servicemen could buy all sorts of American products, including gramophone records. So Nick's mum would go to the shop and buy, you know, an Elvis Presley LP or something. And, and consequently, uh, Nick got to hear this stuff at a very, very... Uh, early age and then um, also they bought Nick um, when he was showing signs of becoming an entertainer when he was very young and they bought him a ukulele which he learned a few chords on and he would he would entertain um, his father's RAF colleagues and their wives at sort of social events they're having the basement of their of the place they lived in so he very early on seven eight years old he was learning to to entertain and that's the sort of roots of it And then um, also, um, you you mentioned earlier uh, about his genealogy going back further, uh, I was absolutely intrigued to find out stuff that nobody knew. Nick didn't know anything. I mean, I can talk about that if you want and just add to the picture a little bit. Um, uh, I found out that on Nick's mum's side... um, her, uh, the, her grandfather, in other words, Nick's great grandfather, was an American Civil War veteran. Now you know you, you can't make this stuff up, right? I don't see
0: that coming as a Nick. Yeah, Lowe Don thing.
1: Thatcher. He he fought in the American Civil War, in, what 1860 or whenever that was, and he married an Austrian Baroness called Alberta Kasper von de Trave. Um, Nick didn't know any of this until I told him, and. His great grandmother's brother-in-law was a guy called Charles Adams Randall, American guy, who invented the jukebox. Now, come on, you know.
0: Come on, yeah, you can't and, make. And that I'm up.
1: thinking this is this is crazy. And then I found out that um, Nick's uh, maternal gran- grandfather was a guy called Louis Victor, was a child actor, and his mum sent him out on the boards uh, and billed him as the Dude Vinyl which is a play on juvenile, the dude-venile. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Nick's songs and I'm thinking half a boy and half a man. Come on, you know, and then I'm thinking about the, the, the guy, the Civil War guy, who was a bit of a tricky guy. I mean, he had a lot of sort of scams going on and stuff. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, all men are liars. <laughs> this guy did tell a lot of fibs, you know. And then I'm thinking Rose of England, the Civil War, from high on the hill came the clarion call. Nick has subconsciously written these songs, which directly reflect 19th century, his, his family history, of which he was ignorant. So that was thrilling. T- but the funny thing was – the funny thing is, actually, um, when my book came out, I, I generally I get quite good reviews and, and on social media people are pretty kind. But there was one fairly sniffy comment about about the, all this history and, and it was a bit of a put-down. But I, personally, I find it in, interesting. But my editor moved it to the back of the book because he wanted to get to the rock and roll. Right, so it's an it, appendix now I called On Metal Are Liars. But interestingly – Nobody has hardly mentioned it, and it's it's almost a sit. So I don't know if people don't get to the back of the book, but it's it's surely it's a fantastic, fascinating story. I think. Yeah, it was fascinating. Not, I, I certainly, I, I, yeah,
0: I certainly got to the back because all the stuff when he's a kid is great. Like like you have that, you know, and then you go back further than when he's a kid. You have the great. I love the story of him playing the ukulele. You mentioned and his for his father and his father's friends, and his father would give him a look and say, "Okay, that's enough." That's <laughs> yeah, exactly, And that's how that's how Nick Lowe learned, you know, how, how do you how do you read a room and things like that. But the great thing about your appendix is that it goes even further back than that, which which made me laugh when I was reading it. I'm like, this is such a great find.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, yeah, Nick does. He knows when to. I mean, his his live shows now, his solo shows. Uh, if it's just him on his own, not you know, not without lost lot straight jackets, he'll do an hour and seventeen minutes. You know, including on. He, he's always you know he keeps it very concise, and it, the time flies by. But you think, well, that's fair. You know, he's done a good show, but he kind of knows. He doesn't overstay his welcome on stage you know I, I really I, I respect that I think it's great
0: Yeah me too me too and I've seen him I've seen him live several times as I'm sure you know as you have as well but uh, let's get back to Nick so in 1962 he's at school he meets Brinsley Schwartz Schwartz he's 13 or 14 about 6 years later he gets this call from Brinsley Nick joins the band, named after Brinsley Schwarz, and uh, your book had me hyping on their music for, for several weeks. And you tell this great story, I love this story, about this event from 1970 called The Hype. So tell our listeners, what was The Hype?
1: Well, The, the Hype actually is the chapter title in the Nick biography. Um, and it is, it's a well-known word for for exaggerating something and making it, <laughs> promoting something as better than it really is. You know, that's what a hype is, as we all know. Um, but there was another reason why the chapter was called The Hype, which I might get to in a moment. But um, um, I wrote about, well, I researched The Hype uh, uh, with dozens of people who, who were around at the time. I mean, this is nineteen seventy. And I was fortunate enough to get interviews with all all the key all the members of Brinsley Schwartz. I think their manager Dave Robinson and all all the the record company Guy An- mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Lauder, who were involved in what let's call it the hype for, for convenience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, what I was
0: doing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I wrote about it in detail in No Sleep Till Canvey Island, and and what there is in the Nick Lowe biography is a very is a, is a very truncated version because anybody who really wants to know more can hopefully find no sleep to Canvey Island. But I obviously had to tell the story in, in my Nick book. And, um, yeah, what, what happened was, um, I've got to, I've got to now switch my brain into fact and fiction mode because, uh, I, I you want to know what the facts were rather than the theory. Um, but the facts were that, um, uh, Brinsley Schwartz—they'd uh, been on the on the sort of club circuit in London, playing places like the Marquee. And as you probably know, they were originally called Kippington Lodge. And in 1969. Uh, that name was sounding a bit dated, I guess, and somebody said we need a new name. And to Brinsley's horror, the other guys in the group said we're going to go out as Brinsley Schwartz. And Brinsley said, well, nobody asked me. Anyway, um, they were managed by uh, Dave Robinson. Dave Robinson, uh, who was a co- co-founder of Stiff Records, some years later, Dave Robinson had worked in America as tour manager for Jimi Hendrix, and he also managed one or two other groups. And he. Became he discovered, if you like, Brinsley Schwartz, and along with a couple of other people, managed them. And um, they wanted to get Brinsley Schwartz a record deal. Um, and uh, the record companies were very slow to respond, as is usually the case. So they decided between themselves. They called these these Dave and these people called themselves fame pushers. And Fame, they formed a limited company called Fame Pushers Limited. Uh, they had lunch one day and they decided the way to launch Brimsley Schwartz was would be with a big show. And they said, well, where can we put them on? And the PR guy said, well, there's a nice club in London, you know. And and Dave said, no, too small. And then somebody said, what about the Royal Albert Hall, you know, 6,000-seat venue in the middle of London? No, no, it's got to be bigger. And they talked it up over lunch till somebody said, why don't we put them on? in america in in new york now but from dave's days with um jimmy hendrix um he 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 knew he had quite a lot of contacts uh, in in america including the the, the uh, bill graham who was the promoter at the fillmore auditoriums in uh, san francisco and indeed in in manhattan and uh Dave pestered Bill for a gig and event, initially, of course, Bill said, no, 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 no. And then one day Bill says, yes, he said, well, I can put you on in April, 1970. Uh, you can open for a Quicksilver messenger service, who were the headline act. And in the middle of the bill, Van Morrison. Well, of course, Dave was thrilled because Dave Robinson knew Van Morrison when they were kids in Ireland. Um, Dave, you know, Morrison was in Dublin. In, um, sorry, um, Dave was in Dublin. Morrison was up in Belfast, but they, they, they met quite a few times. And I think Dave took photos of Van early on because Dave did a bit of photography. Anyway, so thrilled to get the gig. So, what are they going to do? They're going to put the group on in New York. Now, the record company say, well, if the New York show happens, you've got a record deal. The United Artists Records, fantastic. So, the PR guy says, well, what we'll do, we'll hire a plane and we'll fly over 100 journalists. So, it. Uh, it Luckily, Dave Robinson had a mate at Aer Lingus, the airline, and he persuaded Aer Lingus to give them a a, a jet for a return flight to New York uh, for a mere 7,000 pounds. It was about $10,000. It's nothing, really, for for a whole aeroplane there and back. And um, they invited the press, and they got lots of well-known media personalities and journalists. Anyway, the, the show is on. The journalists are going And two weeks before the event, everything, and I mean everything, goes wrong. You couldn't make up what happened. The band get busted for drugs, for example. They get turned down for work permits to play in America. They get refused American visas as a result. So what do they do? So Dave and his girlfriend, Dot, they say, well, they look at a map and they go, well, New York, well, that's quite near Toronto, which is in... Canada which is part of the British Empire why don't they fly to Toronto and then somehow I don't know drive you know a few hundred miles down to, to New York they fly to Toronto the while they're in Toronto there's a a, 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 a a countrywide strike by the by the landing uh, what are those people called? Uh, the air traffic controllers go on strike. All the planes are grounded. There are no planes into the USA from anywhere, including Toronto. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, come on. Dave hires a six-seater micro plane with a with a with a with. By the way, with a Japanese pilot, <laughs> and they fly on this little plane to New York on the day of the show. They get airsick. <laughs> I could go on. I mean, the plane containing the journalists loses brake fluid over the Irish Sea and has to make an emergency landing in Ireland and they have to wait for a replacement. This is on the day of the show. It goes on and on and on. And, of course, the event was a complete failure and the group come back with their tail between their legs and the rest is history, I guess. But I'm very passionate about this because... um, I think I can t- over the years, uh, I've, I've been approached by one or two film people. And in fact, my, my book has been optioned twice as the basis for a, a, a dramatic reconstruction movie of the story. Uh, the last firm who had it three years ago, they pulled it. They couldn't get the funding. But it's still, the dream is still out there to make a movie of this. And uh,
0: it could be yeah, a It movie would be. It's day. very cinematic. It's very cinematic when you read it because you just keep thinking. <laughs> it's like, it's and, a fantastic story. It's a fantastic and it's story, crazy. and as a first, time, yeah, and as a first-time reader, as somebody who didn't know this story, when I was going through the book the first time, I, I, I could tell in the back of my mind, I'm like, they're going to do the show, and they're going to sound horrible, and it's going to like that. The climax has to be that the show itself has to be a, a, a disaster, and, and as you tell it, it was
1: <laughs> because you have the great disaster. scene of all them. Watching.
0: Yeah, that they're all watching Van Morrison, and they're like, oh, this is what we're supposed to sound like. This. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, and he's just coming off of Moondance. I mean, can you imagine how great? I mean, I saw Van Morrison around that time; sensational show. <laughs> and they learned quite a lot from that uh, from that uh, experience, I think.
0: Yeah, I bet they did. So, right, well, fast forward now, 1972. You mentioned him before, but in 1972, Nick meets Dave Edmonds, and he and Dave Edmonds form Rockpile with you know Nick and Billy Bremer and Terry Williams. One thing your book does really well, it gives a sense of just how big Rockpile was. So how big was Rockpile? What was Rockpile like when it burst on the scene?
1: Well, Rockpile weren't as big as they should have been. I mean, they were the most exciting four-piece I want to say rock and roll. They're not really a rock band. I mean, their music's based on on rock and, rock and roll, 12-bar blues. It's based on the music of Chuck Berry, etc. But for that type, I mean, I guess the nearest thing would be like Creedence Clearwater Revival kind of had that vibe. And over here we had Rock Pile. Um, but they, and I think Rock Pile could have been massive, really, really much more successful. But sadly they they bailed they bailed out on 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 the brink of stardom i mean this their debut album, which actually followed several solo albums by Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe, as we know, which were essentially rock pile records, but they went out as Dave or Nick uh, the same four people you know with Terry and bill billy uh made made their records and they made the rock pile l p and when it came out in late nineteen eighty it was actually scaling the, the American Hit Parade. And when things started to go a bit awry, awry within the Rockpile camp, um, they were getting fantastic press. I mean, they'd done this tour a year before they'd done this tour, opening for Blondie across the USA. Um, that got them a very big following. Um, and from 77, eight, nine, 80, for three and a half years running, they toured America a lot and they built a following. They were ready to ignite, in my opinion. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, there was some uh, – they were making a good living, you know, and Billy Billy Bremner's telling his jokes and Terry Williams is the, the hardest driving drummer in the history of rock. And rock. I mean, they were just fantastic group. Um, but unfortunately, there was some business uh, problems behind the scene. Uh, uh, and there was a sort of triumvirate, if you like, of, of Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe and Jake Riviera. And uh, Jake Riviera was the manager of uh, Elvis Costello, but he was also the manager of Rockpile. And it's a very complex uh, story. And I'm not really at liberty to <laughs> speculate on the details, but let's just let's just say... Dave Edmonds didn't kind of agree with some of Jake's business plans uh, and said so. Uh, And um, that caused a rift between Dave and Jake Riviera. But also at that time, let's not forget, Nick Lowe was obliged to make his next solo album for Columbia. He'd done the first one, uh, which had a different title in America to what it had in, in England, as you know. Uh, that that caused a bit of interest, and he's making his second uh, LP. And you know, there's pressure on him to finish the recording and get the get the record out. So there were a lot of little internal conflicts. Anyway, basically, um, Dave Edmonds and Jake fell out. And um, Edmunds left, Rock, well, Rockpile just dissolved suddenly, you know, in, I think, February uh, 1981. In fact, I remember personally that that day I, I went to the offices of, of what was called Riviera Global for a beer with uh, with a few people, including Nick. And as we walked up the road to the pub, Nick said, oh, Rockpile broke up today. It was that they'd had a group meeting literally that day. And he, I remember him telling me about it. I couldn't believe it, you know, but that was that. It was very, it was disappointing because I think they could have gone on to great, great stuff, you know. But um, that that's all I can really tell you about Rockpile. They were just great,
0: though. They were a great group. Yeah, you make a point that, they were, that everybody wanted to see them live and that the record didn't do them justice.
1: Yeah, well, I was... You know, slightly disappointed with the Rock Pile LP. I think on the solo albums, Nick had gone a long way to do some great songs. Dave did some uh some good covers and co-writes, dare I say. Um and um I think the I think the, the Rock Pile album was a bit you know, it was kind of okay, but there were too many, in my opinion, too many sort of R and B covers. It could have been a bit better. There's, by the way, there's a very good book uh, recently published about Rockpile in Sweden called "Crawling from the Wreckage," put together by a guy called Rickard Bengston. and uh, I think he only sells it online. But and he's doing a second volume of it, which is being put together now. So Rockpile fans, if they can find it, the "Crawling from the Wreckage" book will tell you a lot about. It. Oh, well, great pictures in there as well. So.
0: Oh, that's yeah, great. I, I just know. wrote that down. Well, let, let's let's jump ahead a little bit because you just mentioned Elvis Costello. And I and I have to I have to jump ahead and and, and make sure we, we get some time with him. You talk about these early records, like his solo records and rock pile. That's kinda of like um the first act of his career. And I love the phrase that you quote Nick of saying that he used this thing called stunt rhyming. And that reminded me of Elvis Costello. You just mentioned Elvis Costello. You know, they've toured together, they have some dates together in in California at the end of this month. Can you talk about their relationship and, and how they've influenced each other personally or musically?
1: Yeah yeah i mean they they're, they're, as you know they've been touring the states recently um together with with uh, Nick opening the show with La jackets um um elvis Costello was was a Brinsley Schwartz fan when he was very young and um he obviously recognized in Nick um you know some great songwriting and um i was inspired by nick uh, and, and of course other songwriters but um, the, 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 what's key here is the London pub rock scene of the early nineteen seventies, because um, Elvis had uh, a group uh, who tried to kind of, you know, they called Flip City, um, who played on the scene, but they didn't quite make it. But that's when he, you know, he bump into Nick at the various shows, and, and indeed Jake Riviera, and and that that uh, Elvis's enthusiasm for. Nick's songwriting and trying to get his own career off the ground um, sort of indirectly led to what became Stiff Records in 1976, um, which was started by the aforementioned Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera. And, of course, Nick and Elvis were on Stiff Records. Um, I think that they've got a terrific mutual risk. Nick and Elvis have got a terrific uh mutual respect and of course Nick became Elvis's producer and Nick produced the first five uh, Elvis albums um, uh, the ones that really the foundation of his career really and then two or three really re- albums since then um, so I just think it's a mutual respect um, but you talk about the stunt rhyming I mean there, there, there was a lot well, look at look at some of Elvis, Elvis Costello's lyrics. I mean, they're very so they're very clever, aren't they? And I I love the guy. Sometimes a little bit overworked, maybe. And I think Nick r- recognised that in his own songs there was a sort of an overworking. If you go back to the seventies and the eighties particularly, uh, and I think one day he woke up and decided, no, this this has kind of got to stop. You know, I've got to really p- p- pare it back. Uh, and co- consequently his songs are are sort of more uh mature, but I'd forgotten about that uh stunt rhyming <laughs> phrase um li- Nick's lyrics today are a bit more subtle and natural um rather than that sort of in in one ear and out the other that that sort of occurred thirty odd years ago forty years ago, yeah you know.
0: yeah, I mentioned Elvis because because everybody who likes Nick Lowe also likes elvis Costello. And vice versa, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they, they're absolutely, I mean, uh, my whole, my whole youth was spent, you know, one after the other is Niccolo, Elvis Costello, Niccolo, Elvis Costello. Um, You mentioned that, you know, as, as we knew, as I knew that Niccolo produced, Elvis's first five albums. He produced later ones, like I know he produced Blood and Chocolate and some other ones after that. And you talk about Nick as a producer in the book a lot. So for those listening, though, who might be a bit unsure, can can you talk about you know what does the producer of a record do? You know why is that so important, and, and why do people want Nick to produce their records other than his 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 you know the power of his name?
1: Well, um, I think record producers come in many uh, shapes and. F- Forms, um, you know, from sort of a trained recording engineer who knows how to work the desk in the studio, uh, might become a producer when they start adding some inspired stylistic suggestions, and they become so. Some um, record producers have started off as as recording engineers, and then at the other end of the scale, there are chances like myself. Uh, I I've got my name on quite a few records from the I guess the nineteen eighties. Uh, when uh, I wasn't a record producer, but, you know, you get off with the gig and do you turn it down? Are you going to, you are not really going to, you know, I produced, I don't know, The Long Riders, Dr. Feelgood, Any Trouble. I did record with the Hollies. You know, I did a lot of stuff in that period, and uh, I wasn't particularly good, but um, so I'm at the other end, (laughs) and in the middle of this, there's there's the really inspired producers. Now, Nick's skill, I mean, Nick, Nick's skill is really founded on his personality and his in, instinctive um knowledge about how a record should I mean Nick wouldn't pretend to know there's only one control on the desk Nick knows how to work and that's the volume control oh on the button when you push down to talk to the studio do, do that one again please you know he wouldn't pretend to be technical he he's not but what he's got is got a fantastic um uh, way of getting the best out of musicians so when it comes to groups like the pretenders for example we did a record with the pretenders or dr feelgoods he, you know he understands that he, because nick's got the experience he understands the makeup and psychology behind a rock quartet and they're all the same i mean every four piece rock and roll band is made up of four stereotypes that I I shouldn't go, I'll go off on a tangent, I won't do that. But Nick knows this and he knows how to get the best out of the musician. So, you know, he will say if the bass player is in the corner and he's, you know, having a bad day, he'll take the bass player to one side and encourage him out of earshot of the other three. It's little things like that and that's what he's very good at and that's why he has been in demand um, as a producer, but he hasn't done too much record production lately so i don't know if he get i think he gets offered it but i think he's i think he's sort of moved on from it
0: really in your book, you kind of it makes the impression that like the, his whole vibe makes people, you know, perform better. Like they say, athletes, you know, but if if you're a, if you're a mediocre football team, you'll play better with with a top notch football team. And that, he kind of brings this thing to the studio, and exactly what you said is not technical. He's he's not there moving all the dials, but he knows how to he knows what the song should sound like, the platonic version of the song, right? And then he kind of gets it out of the musicians.
1: Yeah, yeah, he does. He's instinctively knows that he could do when it can do with a a tambourine or a male voiced choir, you know, he, he knows that. And he's also very funny. So he's he, some sometimes <laughs> sometimes some of his let's say studio jokes kind of go over the head of pe- people who What does he mean by that? You know, he, the old the old standbys. But he, he creates a good vibe in the studio and everybody has a good time. Because studio work can be, you know, you're in there for maybe eleven, twelve hours relentlessly and people are falling asleep or whatever they're doing um he keeps the vibe going so yeah that's his skill really it's a personality thing i think Uh, and and, and of course he has a terrific knowledge of popular music and the reference points and let's make that a bit more like the charoles or whatever it is you know
0: right yeah if you have a song if you have a demo and nick lowe says i have some ideas you're going to listen to what what those ideas are
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly he's good so we mentioned
0: yeah, I'm sure. So we mentioned Elvis Costello, and I want to mention another another uh, friend of, of Nick's, which is uh, John Hyatt. So I recently had the chance to interview Michael Elliott about his new biography of John Hyatt. And we know that in 91, Hyatt, and Nick, and Ry Cooter, and Jim Keltner formed this super group, Little Village. I remember when the Little Village record came out, I was so excited. So this is the third big group, you know, Nick has been a part of. And I want to ask you the same question I asked Michael Elliott, you know, What happened with Little Village, and and what does the Little Village story from start to finish suggest about the music business and your experience?
1: Well, I'm probably going to be quite controversial. I mean, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of Rye, Kuda, John Hyatt, Nick, obviously, and Jim Keltner, great drummer, the very best in my humble opinion. But I think the problem was that Little Village were too much of a Musical um, democracy. I mean, you've only got to look at the record, haven't you? Produced by Little Village. Well, it says it all, in my opinion. I mean, they could have done with a tough producer, an external producer, not four producers or two and a half or whatever. They could have done with a third party or a second party in the room, in my opinion. And I, I personally think that that record was a little bit self-indulgent. I mean, I went to see them live when they played in london obviously um very very good show uh, they They all looked a little bit terrified, Nick particularly looked really frightened and it was in quite a big venue um but anyway if you if you get to hear some of their live performances that you know you can find them on the internet, some of the gigs they did after they'd done the album, and they're on the road for seven or eight months they kind of matured. In other words, they really perhaps should have made the record after they'd done the tour, let someone else produce it. And I I just think it's a bit too busy as a production. And um, I don't know what it did chart-wise or sales-wise, but I I think it was probably a bit of a disappointment um, for the record company. Uh, but I think that the record company—I think they were sort of in awe of of the, these people. I now mean, had been associated with that label already for what, fifteen years or something. I mean Rycuda—he's just brilliant. I mean John Hyatt, great songwriter. You know they were fantastic. I think they had too much freedom, and I think the record for me was a disappointment.
0: And that's what—that's. What, what Only an opinion. Yeah, no, that's what Elliot says too, is that when you're given, that they had all the money they wanted, they had all the studio time they wanted, they had all the toys they wanted, but they had no more constraints. And those constraints a lot of times can help, in any art, can help produce great stuff.
1: Yeah, they did spend a lot of hours on it as well. That's the other thing. I think that was a bit indulgent, you know? Anyway.
0: Yeah. All right, so let's move ahead. Act two. (laughs) Let's go to act two. So we get these, act two of Nick's career, we get these three... I think unbelievable albums that people call the Brentford trilogy. We get The Impossible Bird in ninety-four, Dig My Mood in ninety-eight, and The Convincer in two thousand one. Incredibly strong albums. So talk to us about this second phase of Nick's career. You know, what's what's like the first act? What's different? What is act two of Nick Lowe's career?
1: Well, if that's act two, he, 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 which is what it's probably known right. as, you know, he'd come of age. Uh, yeah. He'd been through the gimmicky 1980s. I mean, if you listen to Nick's albums, of the four, four albums, I think, of, in the 1980s, which I love, by the way, I and mean, there's some fabulous songs on. Some of them are a little bit kind of overworked in the joke department, uh, and there are some gimmicky tracks, uh, and they're, yeah, they're, they're patchy. But obviously, there was some great stuff on there. But he 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 realised this, I think, when he got to that sort of fourth album in '89. I think he he wanted to take some time off, which he did. I mean, he had personal things going on in his life as well. He got himself a little pad in in London, and he sort of disappeared for 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 a couple of years. Um, And he was just rethinking the whole thing. And I think he thought, well, if I'm going to come back... um, And I think he still had a record deal. I mean, it wasn't like he couldn't record. But I think he thought it was time for change. And he he went into a period of reflection. Um, And um, he... he, Well, he started... um, demoing his songs on his own you know he'd hire a pub for example a room a private room in a pub and go in there with his the guitar set a little pa system up so he could get a bit of a sound a bit of atmosphere and just stand in there for three or four hours singing to himself <laughs> that funny line about the the cleaning ladies would come around and say who's this poor guy who has to come perform for himself in the pub at lunchtime you know can't he play for the public but this was nick you know getting to to re rethink it uh fortunately also if you like uh, bobby owen the drummer came back from america bobby had been out working in the states bobby um who'd been in nick's band in the early 80s came back and they formed very much of a bond and there are two or three other characters and between them they they formed a little bond and the rule really was you know don't overthink it don't overplay it keep it stripped down and you know keep literally like a lower profile um i don't think he wanted to make the mistakes of the previous decade he needed a slower pace a greater depth of expression in his work if that doesn't sound sort of pretentious and um, he took it, everything back to basics, and any, he only elaborated when absolutely necessary, not for the sake of elaboration. I mean, sometimes your the record and think oh, we've got to have the bells and whistles on that. It's got to sound. No, Nick stripped it back, and he only put the little bits in when they were really needed. So that was really what you'd call it, Act Two, I guess, which is still going on, isn't it? Act Two has actually become Act Two and a Half now, although he hasn't... He hasn't done too much recording in recent years. It's about time he did did a bit more, I think. But um, I love some of his newer songs as well.
0: Oh, they're great. They're great. So we could talk about those. I mean, you, you know, you praise, you know, you talk about stripping down. That's a great way to describe him, right? Um, you know, you reviewed Dig My Mood in 1998, and you said that the vocal set really high. You said it's 70% of the picture, so you can crank it up without the drums annoying the neighbors. So his, his, which is so true. And that's so, I think, um, evocative of what Act Two or Act Two and a Half is about. So in, in, in 2020, his latest, you know, EP comes out, Lay It On Me, which is incredible. He's 71. I I, I listen to that all the time. I think it's great. And you quote him as saying uh, this, I love this line about him performing now. He says, when you're performing, you don't feel like you're any age at all. So we've talked a lot about you know the young Nick and the older. Like, like how do you think his age has made him, uh, you know, even more cool or cooler in a different way than he was when he was like the Jesus of cool when he was younger? Like, how much has age do you think fed into you know his new batch of songs and the way he sings now?
1: Well, I think when he goes on stage, he goes into a uh, he goes into a uh, not a character because he's, he's very sincere, but. He's on another planet when he's on stage. You know, he's not thinking about... That's why I think what he means by age is nothing when he's singing. It could be any age. But pop music and rock and roll has been the domain of the young, hasn't it? For for, for years. Teenagers, really. Um, and, and don't forget, you know, if you only got to go back 30 or 40 years, musicians were ribbed for being old. You know, 30, you get out of here. You know, I think that... Mojo magazine, English music magazine, um, helped to change the mindset. Um, I think if you look at some of the early issues, I'm not plugging Mojo by the way, but if you look at some of their early issues from the mid 90s, there's no mention of an artist's age in any of the reviews. I think I'm right in saying this record reviews, interviews, um, stories about bands. They don't, they played down. Um, age completely. Now, I don't know if that was a conscious thing on their part, but you'd be hard-pressed to find, you know, um, Chuck Berry, 78. They didn't print it. They used Chuck Berry, you know, um, and the young people were the young people. Um, but um, it, it was a sort of a subtle – it was a sort of a mini revolution. And, and suddenly it was cool to be 40 or 50 or 60 – providing uh, that you weren't attempting to remain a teenager, like we all did, you know, when we were like 35. I can remember, like in the records, you know, I was like, 31 or something at the time. I, I convinced myself I was 19. You know, that was my attitude when I, when, when I got on the tour bus, you know. Uh, that's all gone now. And um, it's no longer about wanting to remain teenage, teenager, and it's no longer about uh, appearance as well. Um, Elvis Costello made a very good crack, you know, about Stephen Tyler of Aerosmith, which I think is in my book. Uh, and we all love Stephen Tyler, of course. But Elvis Costello said, talking about Tyler's image, which he still carries today, isn't that isn't that an awful lot of work every morning? You know, <laughs> and, and, and and Nick uh, Lowe personifies the pop musician who grew old gracefully. Um, uh, in fact, I think you'd go as far as to say Nick was kind of the first. I mean, there was the. F- I mean, who else has there been? I mean, Leonard Cohen always looked mature. And I guess you can say Tom Waits grew <laughs> old gracefully. But Nick was one of the first to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to try and dress like an 18 year old anymore. I'm 60. And I'm going to, you know, but he looks pretty cool. Uh, he carries it off. But suddenly. You know, old is good, you know, old is value. If you've got that, you can still get up and strum. It's great, isn't it? So we like, we like old people. (laughs)
0: I love. We do. I love. I just love your comparison. I never. That never occurred to me until right this moment. The comparison with Leonard Cohen, because you know, at the end of his career, when you're watching Leonard Cohen, you could be 18 and think, "Man, like, there's a cool, cool guy." And who had, you know, talk about somebody who embraced it over his career. What Leonard Cohen was like at the beginning and at the end when he started wearing his fedoras and and going, you know, and how even how his voice changed and his songs, you know, reflected the new changes in his voice. That's a great comparison.
1: Yeah. he Leonard, Leonard Cohen sort of looked mature. There are very few, though. Very, there are loads of them now. I mean, in the last five or 10 years, there's loads of groups who are sort of, um, you know, emphasising their age. But if you go back only 15 years or so, there weren't many acts out there who were prepared to not dress like a teenager anymore
0: (laughs) yeah because when you're a kid it makes sense like when he was when he was younger he he wants to write these like cutting songs like mary provost or or so it goes and that's you know he, he didn't have he didn't have songs like the ones on the convincer in him yet or so to speak so that's that's a great way to think about it so so let's talk about his, you know, his fan base for a moment. You know, he's one of these, Nicola is one of these figures that not everyone knows about, but those who know about him really, really like him. I mean, um, Jerry Garcia once said about the Grateful Dead, he said, it, it, people, deadheads are like people who like licorice. Not everyone likes licorice, but the people who do really, really like it. Um, and I, I want to get a reaction to you from something in your book. I'm going to just read you a quotation from your book and I wanted to get your reaction to this because I thought it was spot on. Quote, His more recent music is virtually unknown beyond a loyal band of followers, despite its undeniable crossover appeal. His fans are mystified, yet one senses an air of protectiveness surrounding their favorite music maker. Do they really want him to be discovered by the masses? Is he the secret his fans would rather not share?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a bit of there's always been a sort of a slightly sort of snob value, hasn't there, in 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 any music you you like. I mean, if you like classical music, everybody's heard of Beethoven, but a lot of classical fans will reference some really obscure Austrian guy that you, you've never heard of. And Nick's a bit like the obscure Austrian. He's not the Beethoven. He's not the, the the Rolling Stone, or the you know, he's 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 but his music is very mainstream actually and would i believe have have a very broad appeal if it reached a wider audience but i don't know how it's done anymore i mean um there's thousands of people who would enjoy his work if only they discovered it i mean i can remember sometimes you know i'd be in the car with with a friend or something who didn't who wasn't a music person and i'd have a cd on or something and i'd play a track by lots of people but say Nick Lowe and people say, "Oh, this is good. What's this?" And you go, "You don't know what this is. This is Nick Lowe. It's or or Elvis Costello. It's kind of like a well kept secret. And um, uh, you know, I I, I think that um, uh, I don't know that if he, you see, you see, really, um, I won't say Nick is to blame, but he definitely went through a period when he he didn't want to promote himself. You know, he, he, he would be offered a TV, like a chat show or something like that, because he's a personality and he's a funny guy, and he did turn it down. He he definitely didn't promote himself in, in let's say, the early 90s. If you go back to post those 80s records, he kept it low-key. I guess there's a price you pay for that. I think he enjoys his position in where he is. You know, he makes a good living from music, I think, um, you know, and he's got his fan base and it's it's serious. The people who like Nick love Nick, but I think he could have a broader appeal. But um, I think there's a sort of, I think a lot of fans like to keep them keep him them to themselves, you know. <laughs> it's, sometimes when an act gets, sometimes when an act's got a cult following and they break through, and there have been examples of this, some of the early people drop away, but by then it doesn't matter because they're selling millions of records. But
0: I think, yeah. Well, your book makes the great point of how when the soundtrack to the film, The Bodyguard came out, all of a sudden he got all this money from royalties for, for a cover of Peace, Love and Understanding. And it, it was almost like he, like he had it made because now I can do what I want and I don't have to, you know, I have, I have money coming in, everything's going to be fine and now I can do, do the Nick Lowe I want to do. Well
1: i yes, I'm glad you mentioned that, because a moment ago when we were talking about that Act Two, you know, really, um, I think that surely what we're talking about here was uh happened around that time, didn't it? And that may have given him the wherewithal to take his foot off the gas. That may have that may have funded uh I won't say indulgent, but it funded his his reevaluation of his work and gave him he could take two years off. Because I believe he he suddenly got a chunk of change in the bank, you know. But what a fantastic thing to happen! I mean, wouldn't it be terrible if he, he didn't have at least one song which is, you know, done very well and made him
0: some money? Because he's written two hundred really so good many, songs. Yeah.
1: Well, but let's uh, talk
0: about those songs. So, so you know, that the, the we'll, we'll combine a. a question about your title to to your, your own personal taste in Nick Lowe here. So, you know, the title of your book strikes me as inevitable. You're writing a biography of Nick Lowe. It's got to be cruel to be kind. You mentioned playing songs for people in the car and they don't know it's Nick Lowe. And then you might say, you know, the guy that sings cruel to be kind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like pe- people know, everyone knows cruel to be kind. Right. And he says, you know, originally he didn't want to record it. He did. It's kind of become his calling card. He says that, you know, um, the song has been very good to me. So, I assume that that was an easy choice for your title. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you'll tell me. And well, then you could talk about your yeah, favorite songs as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's corny in a way. It's sort of obvious, but it had to be that because it's the recognition factor. So when people who don't know who the Nick Lowe is and they're in the bookshop and they see on they go and they see Cruel To Be Kind, maybe they go, oh, I know that song. I mean, I was on vacation a couple of years ago um, in... Um, in uh, in California, and I was in um, I was in a in a shop. It was a, a drugstore. I was picking up some pills or something, and they had the the music, you know, the the music going on in the background. And um, "Cruel to Be Kind," Nick Lowe's "Cruel to Be Kind," started playing. And then went up to, to, to the to the till to pay for the, for the whatever toothpaste or whatever. The guy said, "Who's this?" The guy on the the, the shop worker. I know this song. Who's this? And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, this is in that town. What's the town where um, the famous actor was the mayor? Um, uh, the, the Rohard guy. Um, Clint Eastwood was the uh, mayor. Clint Eastwood, uh, yeah.
0: Carmel, California. Carmel, California. Carmel, that's right.
1: And uh, he said, who is this? And I said, well, I said, I can tell you that is an English singer by the name of Nick Lowe. And he went, Oh no, don't know him. But he knew the song. So you go in the bookshop, Crawl to be Kind, clearly has to be the title, but also behind the title is I felt it gave me a sort of license to have a little dig now and again and, and tell the truth if I think, you know, he's been a
0: bit of a silly boy.
1: I can say I can be cruel to be kind to the guy, you know, so it, it had to be
0: the title. Yeah. It had to be. Yeah. Um, and let's, this is a silly question, but I just want to end with this because the answers change for you know, a day by day, but, but what are some of your favorite Nick Lowe songs? I mean, he's written over 200 of them. You know, if, your, your list might change this afternoon, but, but what are some of the ones that you, you go back to that every time you hear them, maybe they knock you out?
1: Well, Funnily enough, I, would, I was asked this very similar question about two months ago when I did uh, an interview and uh, I made it like a little top ten and I, I found it, I'd written it down and I look at it now and although it does obviously change from day to day, it's still pretty much the, the same 10, ten songs. and um, Songs I love, uh, okay, Don't Lose Your Grip on Love, which you recorded with brensley Schwartz. I mean, somebody's got to cover that one day. I mean, it's just, I mean, maybe somebody has covered it, but somebody's got to, like, I'd love to see a soul, an established soul artist do it because it's such a good song. I love that. Uh, moving through his solo career, I love Mary Provost. I mean, it's a little bit gimmicky, but it's very, very funny. And uh, Mary Provost, you know, the, the tragic act, actor. In fact in fact going off on a complete tangent I was walking through a park here where I live in Essex England about 6 months ago and you know the the, the plaques they put on the benches where in 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 honor of people who have died and I was walking along and I looked to the I could have looked to the left I looked to the right and there is a plaque in memory of Mary Provost with a birth date died died 1970 five, I think, from her family or whatever. I, I took a photo of her. I thought, well, what's the chances? Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but well, that's another story. But I love Mary Provost. Um I love uh, on the Rock Pile album, my favourite track on there's Now and Always, which sounds kind of like a Buddy Holly song, I guess, you know. I I it's a simple song, beautiful melody. Um number four would be The Rose of England. Uh, high on a hill came the clarion call. Great, great song, damned
0: if you don't, and damned if you do. That's
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, damned if you do. And yeah, great, great song, Um, song. a bit gimmicky, but I really like All Man Are Liars because it's again so so funny. And the Rick Astley, (laughs) the Rick Astley joke (laughs) itself,
0: every time I hear that, I laugh. I mean, it's just that he got him in there. I just every time I hear that, I laugh.
1: I always wonder if Rick, Rick Astley's still around here. He has, a, still having mean, the odd hit record in England and he tours. Like, he must have heard the song. He must have, heard, somebody must have, his manager must have told him about it. But that's a funny line. He had a great big hit. It was ghastly. Uh I love The Beast In Me because it's so raw and stripped back. And, of course, Johnny Cash's version is Bags of Atmosphere. But Nick does his own song very well. Love that. I also, getting slightly into the gimmicky, I Trained Her to Love Me. I mean, I can remember the first time I heard that song before it came out on a record. I went to see him do a solo show in London, a big theatre, just him, and I think Garant Watkins might have been with him on piano. And he did his songs, you know, cruelly. Then he suddenly did I Trained Her to Love Me. And I'm sitting in, in this a seated auditorium and he's singing these lines. And there are pe- you could physically feel women w- with their husbands or their boyfriend. They're, they're people were sort kind of cringing at this, the bluntness of this song, and I'm thinking this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. It's so so. That's one of my favourites.
0: Because it's I also, love, if, I, if, I, if I could interrupt for a second, it's I love that song so much because it's so un-Nick Lowe-like. You know, he's not this, he's this cool gentleman. he's But in that one, he's a, he's a player, which the persona is so unlike what you want from Nick Lowe or expect from Nick yeah, Lowe. That's why so, it's so funny.
1: Yes, yeah, so I could go ahead and break her heart. You know, it's so callous, isn't it? Uh, um, Nick, Nick always says, you know, that... You don't have to believe the things he sings in his songs. It's only a song. It's, it's all fiction. I, I kind of think under the surface, I don't know, there's a bit of personal stuff in there. Um Okay, what are we on to? Three more. Lately I've let things slide. Um That is so good, isn't it? With a growing sense of dread and hammer in my head, fully clothed on the bed. Uh, just that untouched takeaway I brought home the other day has got quite a lot to say. It's just he um there, there, there's um yeah okay going off on a tangent yeah that's a great song um i like house for sale because that again is very got a lot of sadness in it and from his more recent songs i love blue on blue i think i think that's really really good so that's sort of my top 10 today and five of them will always be in there. But the other five might rotate with some other songs. You know, so, yeah.
0: And you yeah. span his whole career there. So it's it's it, he's he's a great great. And he's and it's funny because like we just take him almost for granted. Like he's always he's always been around. He's making great music. And and you know then the Christmas album comes out. You talk about that in your book. And then you know he he hooks up with Little Straitjackets and and uh, he just keeps going and he just keeps getting better
1: yeah yeah he's he's good and i hope he carries on for many more many more years and i think he's enjoying it now more than he did even 10 years ago and i mean i go see him do gigs solo let's say acoustic he appears to really love it you know he's he's on that, on stage and he's putting it over really really well
0: yeah great so Will Birch's Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe was out in paperback from Constable Books. It is a terrific, terrific read. I've actually read it twice, cover to cover. Will, thank you so much for your conversation and the insights into Nick Lowe.
1: It's been great, Dan. Thank you very much.